Well, I'm not sure that uh, you necessarily would have picked this up, but the theme in all the readings uh, today had to do with cities, from the Old Testament to the Psalm, to the reading from Hebrews, even to Jesus as he was moving toward the city of Jerusalem. And you know, finding oneself in the center of a new and unfamiliar major city can be extraordinarily disorienting. I'm not even going to tell you about the time on uh, our 25th anniversary uh, when we were in Italy and our first morning in the city of Rome, I went out for a run and uh, came back about three hours later to a wife who was not happy and frantic. And uh, it, it tempered a little bit of the rest of that trip, didn't it? Have I ever apologized to you for that? <laughs> that was 15 years or 17 years ago now, wasn't it? And um, it still is a little bit embarrassing to me, and I'm sure frosts Lauren just a, a tiny bit. But that's not, I'm not going to tell you about that. Um, because I wanted to tell you about a, a trip when we were in San Francisco to see Hamilton a few years ago. Now, San Francisco is a beautiful city full of just breathtaking and welcoming features. And a hotel uh, concierge uh, gave us some quote unquote simple instructions from a hotel in the Embarcadero to where we could catch a trolley to Fisherman's Wharf for some clam chowder in a sourdough bowl and an anchor steam. Unfortunately, a lot of the streets in that part of the city run diagonally, and apparently AT&T isn't nearly as major a player on the West Coast as it is on the East. And so despite deploying four smartphones, we were soon four adults trying to get somewhere by committee, simply wandering around with no sense of north, south, east, or what we really needed, west. We were completely disoriented and worse, quite obviously, tourists. I bring this up because the book of Hebrews reaches its climax in chapters 11 and 12. This week's epistle reading from the second half of the chapter, uh, chapter 12, verses 20, 12 through 29, and you can turn there in your Bible or your device. Uh, we're going to be parked there for the remainder of this time points to a new and unfamiliar and fairly major city we're promised for the future, and also of which, according to this passage, we're already locals, or should be. It's a city that's both now and not yet, and it's in, in, if that's not mind-bending enough, this present future city is also full of breathtaking and welcoming features we might find bewildering and overwhelming. In a word, disorienting. It ought to, however, have the opposite effect. Rather than disorient us, it ought to orient us to our true home, to something both material and eternal. I mean, one thing you notice right away about this passage is the contrast of this new city, Mount Zion, as the writer of Hebrews calls it, with the other mountain that played such a huge part in the biblical story, Mount Sinai. The writer doesn't actually mention the word Sinai in these verses, but it's obvious that this is what he's thinking of. 
and Zion was the central part of Jerusalem, the part captured by David and made first into the royal city and then the site of the temple of the Lord. And a couple of themes of the book come together in this passage. One key theme from an earlier part of Hebrews, that of the true heavenly temple into which Jesus has gone on our behalf and into which we are now invited because of what he's done. It comes to its apex in this passage. The new city is the new temple, the place where God lives in glory and invites his people to share in his life. And a second theme in the letter reaches its apex in this passage. The beginning chapters of Hebrew also draw a strong contrast between the law and the gospel, between Moses and Jesus. Not that the law was a bad thing to be happily cast off or that Moses was to be regarded as irrelevant. No, but that the new covenant with that's been established in and through Jesus is simply better in every way. In other words, Jesus is what the old covenant had in mind all along. I will be the first to admit that the book of Hebrews isn't the easiest of the epistles for us to understand. And so a lot of times what we do is simply just cherry pick a verse or two here or there, or in the case of chapter 11, the whole thing. But here, as with any passage, context is critical for understanding. As I mentioned last week, big picture, this epistle explains to the Hebrews their own scriptures, the Old Testament, hence the name. The writer takes them from what they knew, the law of Moses, to what they hadn't known before, the revelation of how Jesus entirely mediated and fulfilled all of the law and brought them into a new covenant with God. This right here, do you know what this is? Who said dark side? Anyone? This actually is <laughs> the cover of the album cover for Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. And I think it's instructive. And by the way, all truth is God's truth, so no qualms about using this. <laughs> but this is the best picture I know of for precisely what Hebrews is doing. Hebrews tells us repeatedly that the birth, life, teaching, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is, is the prism through which the entire law of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is, reflect, is refracted into its intended glory. When we read the Old Testament, it always ought to be through the prism of Jesus. And all of the Old Testament, every bit, every page should be read, interpreted, and understood through him. This right here is the contrasting picture Hebrews paints, and it paints it in chapter 12 in striking colors. By the way, whenever I read the Old Testament, this is the picture I keep in mind. Where's Jesus? here.
Mount Sinai, this first contrast, was a terrifying sight, burning, burning like a volcano, dark with clouds and roaring with strong winds. And to make matters worse, out of that conflagration came a terrifying trumpet blast of a voice. According to Exodus 19, where this story is told in detail, the voice from heaven could be heard at the foot of the mountain, petrifying the people and warning that nobody, not even an animal, should come anywhere near the mountain. So holy was it. And in fact, the center of the contrast between Mount Zion and Mount Sinai is the contrast between holiness that is terrifying and unapproachable and a holiness that is welcoming and cleansing and healing. It's at this point, though, that we should be really careful not to slip into a common, common modern and postmodern mistake. People often imagine that the contrast between Sinai and Zion or between the law and the gospel is that the old covenant was about an exclusive kind of holiness. And the new covenant is a matter of an inclusiveness that simply lets everybody come and remain exactly as they are. This has resulted in a kind of Christianity that Notre Dame professor Christian Smith called moralistic therapeutic deism. Probably most of you have heard that phrase before. And it goes like this. God wants you to be good. God wants you to be happy. And he basically doesn't want to get up into your grill too much. In other words, doesn't want to meddle too awfully much in your everyday life. Not that... Not that we actually confess this belief, but it's the de facto way many, if not most, Christians live day to day. And the thing is, the first part of the passage that we read today, verses 12 through 17, and really the whole rest of the letter shows how misleading and wrong this kind of thinking is. It says in verse 12 through 17, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Remember that therefore is there for the passage that we looked at last week, running this race, this gut-wrenching race with endurance. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Verse 14, strive, strive, which is a word that means to agonize or to make every effort. Strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. These are sobering and demanding words requiring Herculean effort and in many ways parallel the story told today in the gospel reading from Luke 13. As Jesus was making his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem, someone asks him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? 
And what Jesus does is turn it away from a question of academic inquiry that's speculative in its answer into something different. He turns it into a deep and powerful call to look at just what it means to be saved, what it means to know God and ourselves in relationship to him. Most often in the Gospels, when people ask Jesus a question, he turns it around and gets them to think along an entirely different line because he knows the presumptions at the heart of those questions. And so when he's asked the question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Rather than giving a direct answer, he says, strive. There's that word again. Strive to enter through the narrow door. In other words, agonize. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. And in answering in that way, I believe his intention is to cause his hearers, both in the first century and us today, to maybe reassess our assumptions about what it means not to get saved, but to be saved. Remember, the Bible talks about salvation always in three tenses. We have been saved, we are being saved, and one day we will be fully saved. But he's asking us to reassess our assumptions about what it means to be saved and to ascertain, are, are we, in fact, being presumptuous? Are we taking something for granted that perhaps we shouldn't be? Take a close look at yourself, Jesus says, and then begin to understand what it means to be saved, what it means to truly know God and yourself only in relation to him. Because back now to Hebrews, the point about Mount Zion and the living God whose home it is, is that is not that holiness does not matter. It matters immensely, but that in a new way, a new way has been, has been, has been found and formed and forged and accomplished through which the holiness you couldn't attain yourself under the Mosaic law has at last been achieved. And almost every feature of the heavenly city to which we have been called, described in verses 22 and 23, from innumerable, innumerable angels in festal gathering to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. In other words, the whole communion of saints in earth and in heaven. To God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. All of these seem to emphasize the fact that those who live in this now and not yet city aren't those who've simply been told to come as they are and stay as they are, but those in whom the lavish grace of God has worked such radical cleansing, such fundamental transformation, such ongoing sanctification that they now feel like locals in the holy city itself. C.S. Lewis was fond of saying that this world is basically a, a training ground for eternity. We must always bear in mind, and you've heard me say this a thousand times, what Dallas Willard said, grace is opposed to earning, but grace is not opposed to effort. This is how it says in Philippians 2.2, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. The crowning glory of this present future city then is Jesus, the one whom the new covenant is, 
through, it, through whom the, one, the new covenant is mediated. And there we find the blood that calls for vengeance, not for vengeance, as Abel's did in Genesis 4.10, it tells us, but for full pardon and cleansing. I mean, it's a dramatic, exhilarating, and glorious picture. God's intention has always been to bring people into that full humanity which the law could not do. That perfection or completeness for which sin needed to be dealt with, consciences purified right down to their core, and the whole of life brought into conformity with God's design. And one of the most striking things here is that according to verse 22, those who now live by faith have already, in a very real sense, arrived at this eternal city. Those who now live by faith are already entirely welcome and can come boldly, boldly and with confidence before the throne of grace. Thanks be to God. But in looking to that city, there's also a sober admonition beginning in verse 25 where the author looks back one more time to the thunderous voice that came to the people from Mount Sinai making the earth tremble and quake and we now find that the quaking of the earth at Sinai is replaced in the new covenant not with a calm flat transition to God's new world but with something even more tumultuous not only an earthquake but also a heaven quake God taking all of creation by the scruff of the neck and making it at last what he always intended it to be as Revelation 21 insists for there to be a new heavens and a new earth the present heavens as well as the present earth must undergo their own radical change almost like a death and rebirth which we experience in baptism Hebrews uses a different image for this same transition but the result is the same heaven and earth must be shaken in such a way that everything transient, everything temporary, everything secondary, and everything second rate will fall away. Then only that which is of the new creation based on Jesus himself and his resurrection will shine and endure. This new creation will include all those who belong to the new covenant. And through them, the new world that God has always promised. But this breathtaking picture of God's new world comes to the readers not only as a promise, but also with a warning. If people who refuse to listen to Moses found themselves in dire straits, what will happen to people who now refuse to listen to the one who is so much greater than Moses? Which brings us to the idea the writer wants to leave us with verses 28 and 29 before some concluding instructions in chapter 13. This is really the end of the kind of theological part of the book. A true picture of God and ourselves in relation to him. For him, not a sentimental picture of God seen as an indulgent parent, someone always there to comfort, never wanting to make too much of a fuss, as we saw last week in the first half of chapter 12. The true God is not tame, nor does he spoil his children. He is like a fire. The holiness of God, emphasized through the temple ritual, 
is in no way undermined or diminished by the fact that in the new covenant, his people are invited into his presence in a new way. To think that would be a radical mistake. It isn't that God has stopped being holy. God hasn't changed a bit. It's rather that Jesus has opened up a new and living path through the curtain right up to him by his holiness. And only when we remind ourselves of God, God's holiness do we appreciate the significance of just what Jesus achieved by the imputation of his righteousness to us. It's notable in the church today that where we've spoken of God without stressing his all-consuming holiness, the meaning of the cross is downgraded in proportion. He, but Hebrews, as well as the rest of the New Testament, celebrates the accomplishment of Jesus in his sacrificial death on the cross precisely because its view of God has not changed from the central belief we find in the Old Testament. God is the same, or to put it another way, it's the same God who has now in Jesus brought his saving plan set forth in the Old Testament to its magnificent conclusion. And all of this, the new heavens and the new earth, the holiness of God, the new Jerusalem, the eternal city, shouldn't disorient us, but rather do just the opposite. It should, in fact, orient us because it plainly gives the only appropriate response to it all, something we can practice today, a life of genuine gratitude and worship. That's the point of verses 28 and 29. It's what the therefore is therefore here. Therefore, all of that that we've seen since verse 12. Therefore, be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot. I want to say that again because it says that cannot, not will not be shaken. Because its foundation and cornerstone is Jesus himself. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaking, shaken. Let us be grateful, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And just one more thing. I mean, have you noticed just how corporeal, how material and embodied all of this is? How much not just us, but the stuff of creation matters to God and will also be redeemed, will also make its way into eternity. I grew up in a faith tradition that really genuinely wrestled with the question of, proper, of, of, of a proper Christian attitude to what we sometimes call the good things in life food, drink, money, friends, and possessions. And we struggled in, in which, in a way that there was some justification because we know that sin isn't just doing bad things. It's may also making good things, ultimate things. And knowing well that these things can become idols if pursued for their own ends, we often found ourselves led in the direction of renunciation, setting aside all interest in and claim on them. Or 
at least publicly. What's that old joke? Jews don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Protestants don't recognize the Pope. And fundamentalists don't recognize each other in the liquor store. <laughs> I've come to the conclusion, though, without ever wanting to pursue them in an idolatrous way, these good things of life, that the only proper Christian response to material goods is simply gratitude. Let us be grateful. Genuine gratitude for, to God for what you have is actually the best way to keep the good things of this world from becoming ultimate things. That way, they can never be turned into idols, nor can we make the mistake of supposing that when God made the world, he made trash that we can ignore or look at with contempt. And if that's the case with the present world, with all its ambiguities and imperfections, um, how much more ought we be grateful for the world to come, the world we believers have been promised as our true inheritance, true gratitude, both for the present world and for the world to come, may be one of the deepest and truest forms of worship, reaching places the entire sacrificial system never could. You guys probably know that we've been throughout the month of July and August having these dinners called Joy Together Dinners in which we share a gratitude memory around the table. And there are some specific ways in which you do this that make it quite meaningful. And we, Lauren and I, got to participate in one last night with six other people, and it was absolutely stunning as we wept with each other and, and <laughs> laughed with each other and just enjoyed each other and experienced joy. And, and the reason why Steve Engstrom, who's in Wisconsin today, the reason why he wanted us to do this is so that we would begin practicing true gratitude because practice makes what? makes habit and when you habitually bow down before the living God in gratitude from the bottom of your heart for what he's done and for what he will do and and you're going to have a chance to do that very thing in just a few minutes as we celebrate the Eucharist a word that means thanksgiving but when we do that it's as if you're a priest in the temple offering the purest and most unblemished sacrifice, only much, much more so. That is the privilege of being a follower of Jesus and the identifying characteristic of locals in this new city. And that's the life to which our fiery God calls us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.